What does it even mean? Your pursuit of gut health is probably taking you down a rabbit hole of misinformation, useless concoctions, and false promises. So this is where this uncensored podcast comes in. The gastroenterologist and his daughter is the first of its kind, bringing a specialist gastroenterologist and his daughter, yours truly, to help you navigate the world of all things gut health from mouth to bum and everything in between. Join me, Sandra McHale, gut health specialist dietitian and founder of Nutrition A to Z, and my father, Wagdi McHale, specialist gastroenterologist and internist, as we unpack the most talked about topics in gut health, covering both the medical and lifestyle aspects of all things gut, with a ton of comedy and fecal tete-a-tete. Right, let's get into it. Hello, friends, and welcome back to our seventh episode, where we thought to change things up a little bit and have a light chat about the most common gut mistakes dad and I see at clinic. We obviously have a ton, but we'll each share three mistakes and provide you with some tips on how to approach these the right way. So before we get into it, Dad, how was your week? Hi, Sandra. How are you? I'm, I'm okay, but a bit, a bit busy. And uh, there is not a lot of mistakes, but it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, are, you, are you ready to come to Switzerland? Yeah, I just booked the ticket, you know, on the 7th. So you're, uh, I think your book will be launched on the 13th, is it? Well, actually, today is my book launch day. Today is officially publication day. So the book is now available worldwide on all platforms. But the uh, book launch event is going to be in a, in a couple of weeks. So when you get here. Okay, that's very good. Uh, shall I buy it or you'll get me one copy? <laughs> if you want to support the author. <laughs> okay. You can, well, you can buy it off of me. I'll charge you. I'll okay, charge when you I come, I'll, I'll take Kobe. I'll give you the money. Then. <laughs> <laughs> but how was your week so far? So yes. any any interesting cases at all at your yeah, clinic? Today, I just had one nice patient, about 39 years old uh, lady. Uh, she's got problem with bloating. Her only thing is bloating. And she told me she was diagnosed as irritable bowel syndrome about 10 years ago. And she has done the uh, hydrogen breath test and she was tested positive for SIBO. Okay. She had a lot of medication and she didn't improve a lot, but she hasn't had any bowel problems. She hasn't got any abdominal pain. So most likely she is not irritable bowel syndrome. Because these are essential criteria for diagnosing IBS. Yes. Who diagnosed her? Uh, her, her doctor, so I, I, I don't know. But sometimes he maybe he talks about irritable bowel syndrome and then she diagnosed herself. But I think he, she was told to have the irritable bowel syndrome. So anyway, I'm doing some tests for her and uh, we'll try to see what's happening. I tested for uh, celiac disease as well because I got some problems with gluten. And then we'll see. Maybe she needs a FODMAP diet or something or something like that. But uh, that then, uh, yeah. you have to yeah. wait until the results are out. Yeah, definitely. And you have yes. a confirmed diagnosis from your side. Yeah. That's one case. And the other as usual, yeah. Okay. So today we... Yes. Go for it. So we keep talking over each other. Do you want to talk about the gut mistakes that you see at clinic? 
I think if you start, it will be nice till I prepare myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so each of us will share three, and maybe we can alternate so we don't have to talk for such a long amount of time. My first common gut mistake that I believe I've seen at clinic for over a decade now is getting the so-called commercial food intolerance tests. And dad, you know how much I loathe, I can't even find the right word, how infuriating uh, I find these tests and the fact that they're still circulating uh, is mind boggling. But okay, can I just interrupt for one second? Interrupt away, dad. <laughs> because uh, today as well, I got one patient, he has done uh, the FODMAP, uh, this, uh, this, uh, what's food the food intolerance uh, test? Food intolerance test about two years ago. And he, he told me, I think I don't believe in it because they told me are allergic to so and so and so and so, and I'm eating them every day and I'm happy with them. So that's why I told him just don't depend on it. So you can, and I told him just to have uh, a look at your side. Okay. Well, <laughs> no, the, the thing is, I mean, it is extremely common. And I believe that these food intolerance tests have been the biggest scam of the 21st century within the world of gut health and, and just health in general. So for those who are not familiar, now we're not talking about a lactose intolerance test or a fructose um, breath test. I'm really talking about these blood tests or these commercial so-called food intolerance tests that through your blood, it can indicate, you know, a list of foods that you're apparently intolerant to and that you should be avoiding. Now, these tests have inundated the healthcare scene for many, many years now, and that they are very prominent in not only just the medical scene, but a lot of alternative and natural therapy clinics and practices. And contrary to the practice of these institutions, to date, there are no blood tests that reliably identify food intolerances. They're generally very expensive and indicate a very, very long list of trigger foods to be avoided. So if you've come across one of these tests, you will get a list. So it could be a, some sort of a traffic light system. So all the red foods are the ones that you're apparently you should be avoiding. These are, you know, ones in yellow, you should have in very, very small amount, not too often. And the ones in green are the ones that you should be consuming uh, regularly with no problems. The most common, let's say, unorthodox food intolerance tests that I've been seeing are based on the so-called IgG food antibody testing. If you're not familiar what these antibodies or these compounds are, so IgG antibodies are actually proteins that are produced by the immune system in response to exposure to external triggers like food or, for example, um, insect venom or pollen in the air. So IgG antibodies to food are generally detectable in healthy adults and children, whether food-related symptoms are present or not. So IgG antibody testing simply indicates food exposure and not necessarily an intolerance. And actually what I tell a lot of my, my, my clients is that if you have high levels of, a, of IgG to a particular food, it might simply mean that you're actually more tolerant to that food and not intolerant. 
that, so you know not, what? I've... So it's not based on our medical evidence based testing. No, it is. We still consider them unorthodox, but also after through regular testing, they're invalid, unreliable, and irrelevant. So this is why I find it so infuriating. And one example that I use to a lot of my clients in terms of saying it just looks at what you're exposed to. After the pandemic with COVID, if you want to check if a person has been exposed to COVID, they will do an IgG antibody test to check for exposure. And generally, they'll be positive and very high. So you might no longer have any symptoms, but you've just been exposed to, to COVID. So these antibodies are circulating. The, the problem that I have with these tests, apart from them being unreliable and that there is no strong evidence at all that we need to be using them in clinical practice, is they're extremely expensive and a lot of clients will pay out of pocket. Are they, Dad, here's a question for you. In the UAE, are these tests covered by insurance or are they self-paid? No, no. In some very high insurance, they cover it, but generally they are not oh, wow. covered. Okay. I mean, generally, you absolutely do not get coverage for these tests. And they will provide you with a very long list of foods to avoid that is extremely unsustainable and might cut out a lot of the healthy foods that your gut actually needs. So the only way to identify a food intolerance is to undergo an elimination diet under the supervision of an, an accredited dietitian or registered nutritionist who specializes in this area. And one thing that I ask my clients is that, okay, if someone ever recommends an intolerance test, just ask them, what is the evidence? Where's the science? How much does it cost? Why does my doctor suggest, you know, why did my own doctor suggest this kind of, of, of test uh, in the past? So you, you need to start questioning, uh, you know, question these tests. And again, if you had to look at what I call them, let's say, the immunology officials. So if you had to look at the big associations like the Australasian Society of Clinical Immunology or the British Society for Allergy and Clinical Immunology, they are all in agreement that there is no credible evidence to date to support the use of measuring IgG antibodies to diagnose an allergy or an intolerance. So it's uh, it's not a valid test to depend on, usually. No, but why, why are we still seeing them? Why are doctors still using them? I actually do know some dietitians even use them. Yeah, that's what you, I'm going to say to you. This, the, some dietitian recommended them to start with the uh, planning the diet for them. And my answer there is there is money to be made from vulnerable and desperate people, people who don't know better, people who've struggled for a very long period of time. And it's very, very unfortunate, but I know, you know, the more that these tests are promoted and used, the more money people are making. And that even includes doctors, dietitians, because you do generate a certain revenue after every sale. I've been approached by numerous companies where if I sell, you know, an X amount of, of these even home testing kits, that I will get a specific revenue back. So that I find is extremely unethical. Oh, but it that's happens. right. Yeah. Have you ever had um, <clears throat> recommended yes. a food intolerance test? I didn't recommend it very much, but sometimes... Very much? <laughs> no. 
No, I, I don't usually, but I asked, I requested a few times at patient's request. He, some patients, they told me, I want to do it. I explained to them that it's not very valid test. It's a bit of, I, I can't depend on it. So, but it is okay. I can, I can pay for it. So it's okay. If I, I just, uh, but for the last few years, I did ask for it this long back. Okay, well, good. Because they don't need to make any more money. Yeah. All right. So I would say that tends to be one of the most common gut mistakes that I've seen in my practice, because as I said, they end up excluding so many foods for a long period of time, uh, which can actually have a negative impact. And 99% of the time, I mean, I can actually tell what the results are going to include. So gluten is 100% on that list different types of the, the, the cow's milk proteins and things like casein, for example, eggs. Um, eggs are on there. Again, it, you, you know, it's, it's <laughs> a lot of it is not a surprise because it's just all the foods that a lot of these. And you have, have different, been exposed to. Yeah, you can see different patients with the same results. Exactly. So what's, what's your first gut mistake? Okay, I think I'll better start with the antibiotic use or misuse. Okay, would would you say overusing antibiotics? Misusing, overusing, and using antibiotics by people. Okay. You know, the antibiotic is made to treat bacterial infection. So if it is not bacterial infection, the antibiotic has no role. So when you take antibiotic for common cold for viral infection, for fever, which you don't know what's the cause of it, sore throat, all of this, most likely it's not bacterial infection. So if you use the antibiotic, so you're creating antibiotic resistance and you're creating bacterial resistance. You're creating bacteria which will not respond to the antibiotic. And this is if you're overusing it or misusing it. So you don't need yeah. to use it, but you're still, you know, okay. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because, I, I can tell and you. nowadays you are having antibiotic resistant is growing problem. In the meantime, and you even, should watch, you should watch a documentary called The Invisible Extinction because it talks exactly about this problem. Uh, the Invisible Extinction is about how we're eradicating you know, just, just like we've got climate problems and we're seeing a lot of species disappear and become extinct, the same thing is happening to our gut bugs, our inner ecosystem, and antibiotic use is actually one of the reasons why. Yeah, that's right. For example, the to treat H. pylori, and you are having, from the regimens we have now, some antibiotic, because people are using it very widely, so we have got resistance for this. So nowadays we are not recommending to start this specific antibiotic, which is a bit of resistant to the H. pylori treatment. This is very problematic and yeah. scary. So it, and the on the other hand as well, you don't know what is the side effect of the antibiotic you are taking. So you might you are prone to have antibiotic side effects because there are a lot yeah most of the antibiotic they've got side effects and the other problem is they take the antibiotic for one or two days they feel better because it's not the antibiotic not the effect of the antibiotic because the viral infection is fading away 
so they stop the antibiotic after two to three days. Yeah. And they don't is, take the full course. So this is another problem creating the resistance for bacteria. Okay. So this is the use of the antibiotic should be only prescribed by healthcare provider. You have to take the prescribed daily amount as prescribed. You have to complete the entire treatment. And if you got any side effects, you have to tell your doctor straight away. So this is the story of the antibiotic misuse and use. Um, when was the last time you used antibiotics? Maybe one year ago when I have a severe chest infection after COVID. It was... Uh, so was from, it indicated? Yes, because it is... Uh, I, they tested me that mycoplasma pneumonia. And I take specific antibiotic for uh, this mycoplasma pneumonia. This is about one year or less ago. Okay. Uh, when did you last have antibiotic? 13 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm extremely against it. I'm not going to say unless I absolutely need them, I will take them. But um, you know I the haven't... funny. The funny incident when you had a sore throat with the and you showed me your tonsils and it was uh, there was a lot of white patches on it. Do you remember? Yes, and and I you told you to take an antibiotic and you tell you I don't know what did you do. I d I said no, <laughs> I said no, and I said I'm going to treat it. Again, not that I not that I want to say it's always as the right way. It's absolutely indicated. There are certain times where it is indicated to take antibiotics, but in, in my case, I have my own way. I mean, I, I've used propolis, for example, which is a type of um, compound that bees produce that has antibacterial and antiviral properties. And I've been using this for many, many years. And that was actually how I treat Again, maybe it's not the right way to do it. And I do not encourage people to do that without consulting a professional. But I knew that my symptoms weren't warranting enough that I needed to go in for antibiotic therapy or just to see a doctor. But I remember you telling me, oh, you might need to go on antibiotics. And I was extremely against it. And then three I days later or two days later... <laughs> I exactly. You are my doctor. <laughs> and we discussed that I'm not going to take antibiotics, that I'm going to go on the propolis drops and uh, the, the mouth spray and the gargles and the manuka honey. And within 24 to 48 hours, the, the pus, the patches were all gone. And that was back in 2019. And then I, I had another recent episode as well. I think it was about maybe three weeks ago that I had really bad tonsillitis. But again, within 24 hours, I I was able to um, turn things around. So again, I, I think, I mean, dad, again, there is a time and place for antibiotics. And I'm, I'm, I'm always saying there is absolutely time and place for antibiotics to take them. Yeah, definitely. I and mean, because, so the antibiotic is very important drug to be taken if it's taken in the for the correct diagnosis and for correct indication, provided it's written by the doctor or health provider and taken in proper way, proper amount, and full course. 
Okay. okay. So these are That's, the most uh, yeah. crucial points to, need to consider. So what's your uh, next mistake? Okay, my next gut mistake that I commonly see at clinic is eliminating food groups and the top two food groups that, not food groups, maybe ingredients that um, people will exclude are gluten and dairy. So guaranteed that if someone has struggled with their gut, they were advised to eliminate these two. Do you see that often, Dad? Definitely. I've, uh, last <laughs> week, one, one patient, she told me I'm off gluten and off dairy and I'm okay, but still have some problems. So I told her you don't have to because sometimes the uh, bloating and symptoms is not due to gluten itself. Sometimes. Exactly. So, and this is what I explained to clients. So first of all, they tend to be the first two to go out because over the years, gluten has built up such a negative reputation that it is the cause of all ailments. I mean, at one point it was so trendy to be on a gluten-free diet, which is unfortunate. But what we're finding and what people, you know, a lot of the times when clients come to me and say, right, I am, you know, as soon as I smell pasta or bread, I'm extremely bloated and I get stomach pain. I would say about 90%, no, maybe 90 is a big one. 75% of my clients who say they are intolerant to gluten, they are actually sensitive to the, to the fermentable sugars found in wheat. And these are the fructans and not gluten, which is the protein found in wheat. So wheat has different elements in it. Gluten is the protein component. Fructans are these fermentable sugars Some that are found you, in wheat. Sorry for that. You know, there is a study done and they give patients gluten with fructan and fructan only. And the study showed that the symptoms is not due to gluten, it's due to fructan. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and this is, and this is what I was saying, there's actually studies to, to show that too, that about 75% of people that complain is probably not gluten. So there's a lot of fear mongering again and, and so on social media and in general and mainstream media demonizing gluten. There's only a very small percentage of people that should be avoiding gluten and those who are diagnosed with celiac disease, for example, which we're going to talk about in a separate episode. And this is a lifelong el elimination required of gluten, where gluten physically damages the, the lining of the intestines. So for that subgroup of people, eliminating gluten, absolutely warranted. And then there's another subgroup of people who might not fall under the, let's say, celiac disease category, but these are the people that may have something called non-celiac wheat sensitivity. So, but we don't know if actually it's the gluten that's being problematic or if there are other components in wheat. So apart from the fructans and the gluten, that are causing the issues. So the reason why I say eliminating gluten, if you don't have a medical justification for it, can be quite problematic is because there are a lot of gluten-containing grains that are extremely important for gut health. Barley is one of them. So barley is a gluten-containing grain that I recommend. You've probably heard me talk about yeah. barley even in our last episode. But barley is a fantastic gut-friendly type of grain that I highlight, you know, my, I always highlight for gut health. And it can be quite uh, restrictive for a lot of people, uh, whether it's in a family context, whether it's, you know, from a social context, eating out, dining out. 
So if there's no medical justification for eliminating gluten, you don't need to be on a gluten-free diet. So always check in with your dietitian or your gastroenterologist just to see if, if gluten is the problem or not, or are there other components in wheat? The other thing is dairy. I'm sure before dairy... Going, before going to dairy, Sandra, if the patient is come to me and he's and just happy with the uh, eliminating gluten, I have I just test him for celiac disease. I just tell him to try go gluten diet, just take everything and have to test his blood for celiac disease. He might be having celiac and he doesn't know. So uh, in this problem, I have to, to try to eliminate as well or rule out uh, celiac, celiac disease. disease. Because celiac disease is underdiagnosed, by the way. That, that I completely agree with you and trying to convince. So I've also been that in the situation where I would suggest my clients if they've never been diagnosed or sorry, screened for celiac to get disease to get screened, but they need to consume gluten for right. at least two to three weeks or even a month before they get screened to avoid things like having a, a, a false negative. False negative. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. And Carry on with the... I'll carry on with dairy. Dairy is another uh, food group that also gets eliminated very, very quickly. And actually, we do know that lactose, which is the, the sugar found in, 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 let's say, cow's milk, as we get older, we don't tolerate, let's say, lactose very well because we, you know, as we age, we produce less and less of the enzyme lactase that is required to break down lactose. So a lot of people might actually be sensitive to, to lactose. It's important to investigate the cause first of their symptoms before we actually jump on any elimination bandwagon and just to kind of just to find out exactly what is the problem. Is it problematic or not? Because again, I mean, there are some very good sources of dairy for those who do consume dairy that are good for gut health. And the two, let's say, choices I would say are things like kefir, which is fermented milk and natural yogurt. These would be, I would say, the top two dairy foods um, that have solid evidence to, you know, that that they're health promoting. That's right. And lucky enough, we, we can have the test for lactose intolerance. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So we actually can test for lactose intolerance. So that's going back to these these food intolerance tests. And I said, except for lactose intolerance and fructose malabsorption, we can, you know, the, the, the rest we are questionable, but you can test for it. So dairy, is, as I said... Yeah. Oh, sorry, son. Uh, this important point as well, because if the patient has got problem with the uh, dairy and we did lactose intolerance and it is negative, so it's not the lactose. It exactly. Is the protein. So protein. So yeah. this is where we would investigate, hold on, are we dealing with, if it's not lactose intolerance, could it be uh, a cow's milk protein sensitivity? So, you know, our, our minds go in different ways. And this is why I always say I, I like to play diet detective. But dairy is another thing that I would say I'm not so um, held up about because I personally have reduced my consumption of dairy anyway, or just animal products in, in general. But again, not being, you know, extremely eliminating purely because we still do consume yogurt. And uh, I think that's the only dairy product though. And some cheese and feta, feta and goat's cheese. But, you know, 
Phoenix, your grandson, we actually yeah. had to eliminate dairy. He likes completely. ice cream. I know, and I, <laughs> he he loves his ice cream, and he also he loves cheese. But Phoenix has struggled with reflux from a very very young age, and what we noticed is a very very strong correlation between dairy and his reflux worsening. And last month, it got so bad that he his reflux. I got concerned that we probably need to go see a pediatric gastroenterologist, but we eliminated dairy for two weeks completely and the reflux was completely gone. Now, I believe just based on some screening or result test results that he's done a, a couple of years back that he might have a cow's milk protein sensitivity. Mm-hmm. So again, but if, if you were to eliminate a food group, it's crucial that you have the right substitute. That's right. All right. That's, that was my second, you know, common gut mistake. So don't eliminate something, especially, I mean, gluten or dairy, unless it is medically justified. And there are various ways that we can go on. We can go about that. What's your it's, second gut mistake? Uh, uh, self-diagnosing. That's, that's exciting. I think that it, that covers every, <laughs> probably every person dad has uh, self-diagnose himself yeah, yeah. at one point in time. With, with the presence of uh, Dr. Google, so we are uh, struggling with patients. We now have Chad GPT, so now we even have AI. That's probably going to make things Th- worse. That's a problem. This, the, the, uh, so the patient can diagnose himself and then write prescription and take it. No worries. But this is dangerous and dangerous. You know, when I uh, see a patient, how do you start the like how how does the conversation start? So when they come to you to your clinic? Some people, as soon as they sit, they start talking about their problem, which I, I don't know. Just wait for a while till I see what's who are you and what do you do and something like this. Because I ask him about his name, I just have to call him by his name or her name. And then I ask for his his job. What does she or he do because it's very related to his problem and any family history of any problem does he smoke does he drink all of this has to be covered covered before i start talking to the patient about his problem and after taking this introduction i tell him so what's wrong how can i help you yeah first yeah a few one patient last week but so tell me what was the problem Told me, yes, I think I have gastritis. Okay. <laughs> so, why did you come to me? <laughs> He's diagnosed so, himself. Yeah, I told him, I don't want to tell me what do you think, but tell me what do you feel? Why did you come? So, he started talking about his problem is epigastric pain, heartburn, so and so. So, there is, when he told me his problems, he might have gastritis, he might have reflux, he might have H. pylori, he might have uh, irritable bowel, but he has to tell me his problem and his symptoms. And I advise the patient to even write what they want from the doctor in especially points, in, basically. Yeah, points and to cover all what he feels. Yeah, but, but the problem is Again, I, I think it depends where you are in the world. You don't uh, have much time. Yes, but first, uh, first visit with your patient should be. Uh, uh, by, for this point, you know, I uh, 
uh, read in the appointment in Australia, when you take appointment with doctor in Australia, they said, take appointment to discuss two issues only. <laughs> so <laughs> it was very yeah, but funny. It's true. I was going to say, yeah. well, well that's, that's the same thing here. I mean, generally, again, I think it depends which doctor that you go to, but sometimes you actually have to choose exactly why you're going in because then they will allocate the right amount of time. So, I mean, again, I have the luxury of, you know, owning my own practice. So I've got an hour generally. So it's an hour to an hour That's and a half, enough. but an hour for the initial consult is, is the minimum. I mean, here in Switzerland, let's say if I had to go see a GP, it's 15 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes. I mean, it takes me 10 to 15 minutes to say hello. <laughs> so <laughs> and right, my sure. time is done. So this is why I just, I mean, it's nice that you give your patients about 30 minutes, which is um, very the generous. First time. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so uh, the problem is the patient has to tell me what does he feel, not if he, because sometimes he goes through symptoms, Google it, and he's got gastritis, uh, cancer, uh, <laughs> cancer colon, cancer, and all of them, they go through cancer. So the important of... Yeah, that I did that as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> So the result of self-diagnosis might lead to, first, to miss medical disease, the risk of completely wrong about your illness, and you will create an anxiety for you. Yeah. Well, this is if, what happened to me. Yeah. I think this is what happened. During my IBS times, I became a hypochondriac. And yeah, because and the, most of the people, when they've got problem for a long time, the phobia of cancer is there. So when I diagnose patients as 100% of irritable bowel syndrome, I have to tell them there is no fear of cancer because you have to be firm and sharp in this just to eliminate this of their mind. Especially if when you, some people, some patients go symptoms, which are a bit of serious, it will go them to very serious illness. And if they diagnose themselves like with cancer, with so-and-so, they will get an anxiety. And some of them, they go to hypochondrial state. They don't have any serious illness. They they will go to 100 doctors because of the, the thing that has got chest pain. So she might have some heart disease, epigastric pain, so might have cancer. So the self-diagnosing is self-destruction or harming yourself. It's very easy. If you talk to your doctor and tell him, discuss with him your symptoms, and he will listen to you, he will give you all the tests you need to have a definite diagnosis, and you will you don't need to have uh, to read about or to Google it or something. If you want to do this, you can ask your doctor which site I go. Yeah, sometimes I find diagnose, the reliable sources. Basically. Yeah, sometimes I diagnose patient, for example, with ulcerative colitis or. Crohn's disease. I give them pamphlets. I give them sight where to read about this, their illness. It's very good to read about your illness to educate yourself and to to try to uh, to live with your illness if it is a chronic problem. But it should be in a proper way, in a proper a site, reliable in, yeah, source, reliable sources. Yeah, and very and should be very uh, medically oriented. 
So I completely agree. Important. I was going to say, I think self-diagnosing can is, is extremely <laughs> harmful and problematic. And I have been there as well, yeah. even during that period where I was struggling with my health back when I was diagnosed with IBS. I think I went to the cardiologist as yeah. well. And I did a full... <laughs> yeah, but everybody knew this. Yeah. That's why we, the, our doctors are there. And in short, ask your doctor about your uh, problem. Tell your doctor about your symptoms. Don't Google and don't diagnose yourself. So my third and final gut mistake that I commonly see, especially working in the area of irritable bowel syndrome, are clients being on the low FODMAP diet for too long. So if you've listened to our previous episodes and you're not familiar with the, with the FODMAP process, so it's a three-stage process that is part of the management approach for irritable bowel syndrome. The first phase is the elimination phase, and that is going on the low FODMAP diet phase. The second phase is the, is the reintroduction phase, and then the third phase is the liberalization. A lot of clients that I've seen were stuck in phase one, so that elimination phase, for months. I've seen clients that were on it for about six to 12 months purely because they weren't guided. They didn't have the right support in terms of their doctor told me, I, you know, just gave me a pamphlet and told me to be on the low FODMAP diet. And if I feel better, I just need to go on with it, which is um, actually quite damaging and harmful purely because it is a restrictive diet and you're cutting out a lot of good foods that are very, very, you know, again, get on the word important for your gut health, but crucial for our gut health and extremely beneficial for our gut health. So for those who are not familiar with the FODMAPs or what the FODMAPs are, these are just fermentable sugars that are known to um, uh, cause your intestines to absorb so much liquid and gas, causing a lot of gut discomfort, whether it's diarrhea, constipation, abdominal pain and cramps and so on. So there's a, you know, a good percentage of people that are very um, uh, responsive to this diet where they notice a huge symptom improvement. And there's a fear of reintroducing foods because they feel good for a very long period of time. So the, you know, the moral of the story here, the reason why we don't want people on the low FODMAP diet for too long is A, we know it can impact your inner ecosystem because you are depriving your gut microbes from some, from some very important nutrients. You might end up being malnourished. So I have seen clients that ended up losing quite a lot of weight. Their diet, you know, very, very poor dietary diversity. Uh, it impacted their social life where they have not eaten out in about a year purely because of how restrictive it is. So it can actually even lead to this very turbulent relationship with food. Generally speaking, you should not be on the low FODMAP diet for more than six weeks. So That's right. I think, uh, uh, for example, today when I told my patient about the bloating and these things, I don't know, is it right or wrong? But I told her to try, the, after taking the investigations of everything, I gave her the uh, site of the uh, low FODMAP uh, of the Monash University. Yeah. I thought I'd just have a look at it. And because if you are happy, you have to go on a low FODMAP diet with the supervision of a dietitian which knows about these things. So try yourself for one or two weeks with the restrictions. And if you feel happy, you have to see a dietitian to carry on with you. 
Absolutely, because it's crucial to go through the other phases. You cannot be stuck on one phase, even though you feel good. But the whole purpose of this is, is just a short-term elimination for symptom control. And then we start reintroducing foods back just to see, right, which specific FODMAP groups you're sensitive to, because you might not be sensitive to all of them. And how much of a FODMAP group you're able to tolerate before you experience symptoms. Again, it's to really liberalize your diet. So I feel like, again, there's a lot of misinformation there that A, the low FODMAP diet is a low, you know, a long-term approach, which is actually not correct. And I've also seen it way too many times, doctors just handing out the low FODMAP diet sheets to their, to their patients without actually offering them the option of seeing a dietitian or any sort of guidance. I mean, at least you're, you know, you are, you're, you're pushing them towards a reliable source of the Monash University. What? website or even app is a reliable tool exactly it's a reliable tool to use because it explains all of that and it it is a it's a way to maybe self clients to 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 self-guide themselves through these three distinct phases but it is important so sandra sorry for uh, this the the food map sometimes if you for the apple for example apple if you eat certain amount of grams, you don't have symptoms. But exactly. if you it, it is, you get the symptoms. That's it is portion it's exactly. So it is portion specific. So that that really wraps up my my three common gut mistakes that I see here at clinic. And I think the moral of of the story is gut health is really about inclusion and not exclusion. We know to have good gut health, we need a diverse diet and we need to include as much nutrition, as much diversity as possible. And if we have to be on an exclusion diet or go on on an elimination diet, it's only temporary unless it's medically justified like celiac disease, for example. So that's my takeaway message for today, that gut health is about inclusion. Okay. My What's your final is, yeah, mistake? Final mistake or pitfall is delaying seeking support or medical advice. This is very crucial and important issue. A lot of patients, even especially here in Eastern countries, and this, they don't go to the doctor in a proper time. They don't do regular checkup. Now maybe it's getting better, but they used to have delaying the support of seeing a doctor or uh, seeking medical advice. There is some important issues about this. Why they don't have early early medical advice? Sometimes they are not aware of the illness and as I told you, the culture itself. So they don't, they don't, once they are feeling okay, so they are 40, 45, 50, but they are happy and doing no problems at all. So why I go to the doctor? And the other point is financial. In some areas, if you don't have insurance, it's, it's very expensive to see a doctor and to have medical advice. Sometimes people cannot afford this, which is very uh, bad in a way. And the uh, number Three is the self-diagnosing and self-treatment. So I don't need a doctor, which is very dangerous. The other thing is the no medical facility around. If you are Depends in, not in our Accessibility, area. Yeah. I was going to yeah. say. It's... it is very important as well. Some people 
they don't have uh, uh, reliable medical uh, support or something, or or this very far away from them. And sometimes I get patients from uh, African countries. No need to mention names, but they come here for medical advice. <laughs> and the other thing, the family support, especially if you got psychological symptoms or something or behavior problems. You have to have family support and you have to have early uh, medical advice for that. But this is where the cultural, it goes back to culture because it's yes. say, from a mental health perspective, it's taboo in a lot of cultures yes. to see a psychologist or to see a psychiatrist. Now this is, we have to change this attitude because if you go to hypertension, you have to go to internist. If you got something with your uh, brain, you have right. Mind, you have to go to psychiatric psychology. It's very simple and easy, and there is there is uh, nothing wrong with it at all. Uh, some people, another point which is a bit of uh, not funny, but it's strange. They don't go to the doctor because they are afraid that they discover something serious. <laughs> okay, if you are thinking that you might have something serious, so it's better to discover it early. Even the uh, colorectal cancer, if you discover it early, it is curable. If you do screening and you find polyps, you'll, you will be safe. So this attitude should be changed. It's um, the conversations that you have around these uh, issues, I think. Again, education, conversation, and normalizing it. So there is some serious consequences of delaying medical advice. So it's better to tackle this, any health issue early. And don't wait till you require a complex procedures. Don't delay seeing yeah. your doctor. That's right. Is, yeah, this is very important to not to postpone. Uh, well, any... I've, been pos- <laughs> I've been postponing my blood test for a long time. Well, two things I've been postponing. One, my dentist appointment. And two, my blood tests that I need to That's do. Right. I haven't. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I think you have to listen to my talk this today. <laughs> yes, I'll do yeah. as you preach. So don't delay seeking help or support or medical advice. This is the third one. All right. Well, I think because I have to go and prepare dinner, Dad. So I'd love to <laughs> sit here and chat and talk about more mistakes. But I hope today just gives you a bit of an idea of a not self-diagnosing and not overlooking all the other you know common gut mistakes that we see especially when it comes to undergoing any unnecessary elimination diets avoid these commercial food intolerance tests and we hope we just gave you a bit of a snippet of what we see in our day-to-day work but we you know We're happy to have you on here again next week. So we wish you all a great rest of the week ahead. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Gastroenterologist and His Daughter podcast. Don't forget to join us again. And if you've been enjoying our chats, make sure you subscribe, follow, or leave a review on your chosen platform.